So I'm pausing from Ephesians, if that hasn't become obvious yet, just to lean into the advents of Jesus and look forward to in, in 2020, uh, returning to chapter 6 of Ephesians. But the advents of Jesus, for hundreds of years, really millennia, the church has celebrated two advents of Jesus. And as Holly reminded us, advent simply means uh, arrival, uh, coming. And so we celebrate the coming of Jesus. That's what we are remembering, the first one. And today we'll focus on the, the first coming of Jesus in the incarnation. And we also look forward to, the church has always said, we're in between the advents. We look forward to the second coming, the second arrival of Jesus, because he promised he will return as king, not from uh, the, the, the womb of a teenage virgin in a manger in Bethlehem, but now riding upon the clouds of heaven, upon a white horse. There's many images and pictures of the king coming. So that's the second advent that the church would say. I want to focus on a third advent with my third message of this series, the advent of Judea, for lack of a better term. When Jesus inaugurated his ministry, when he arrived on the scene, if you will, John the Baptist had proclaimed and been proclaiming he would come, and there Jesus came and was baptized by John, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him, so beginning three years of public ministry, culminating in his crucifixion, subsequent resurrection, and ascension, three years that changed the world. And so that, I would say, is our third advent to focus in on and what it means for our lives. All three of these are significant for our life. Christ's first advent defines our mission. His second advent inspires our urgency. And that advent in between clarifies our calling. Often we begin a new year with maybe a recasting of mission and vision. By the way, pastors everywhere are so excited because they get to proclaim a 2020 vision. <laughs> and I am not above it. So I have a few visionary things that I will be passing along. I hope they're received as more simple and in the ways of Jesus. And as a teaser, they are prayer, reading the word, and gathering together. So I hope you'll like those. That's some of the vision uh, that I'm teasing out. But 2020 is coming bef before we know it. I thought we'd get a jump start on it. Because if we don't see Christmas time in the context of mission, the missio Dei, the mission of God, then we're really missing the whole point. It's all about mission. The advents of Christ are so vital for our life, our hope, and our mission Jesus is the greatest missionary of all time. He's come in flesh at a great cost to become like one of those he came to serve, to love and give, to pour out his life that he might give life to others. That is the definition of incarnation. I'll spell that out and tease that out in a few moments so that we understand fully the concept. But this is what's behind it. This is the heartbeat behind it. Now it's not only what we are called to, it's who we are meant to be. Wherever we are planted, where we live, work, learn, and play, we are meant to be incarnational. We are meant to be like missionaries because Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, so I am now sending you. So in that same way, with the same heart to be incarnational, fully present in a place, 
with a people, to be among, even to live as, in order that we might build redemptive relationships, that we might love and serve and give and pour out our lives, that others would find true life in Jesus. That's the mission of the church. There's really one mission. Our ministry team was gathering yesterday morning, and we were reminded there is one mission that the church has. In fact, you could say it another way. It's not that the church has a mission, but the mission of God has a church. And we can articulate it in different ways, but the heart of it is who God is and what he has done. And that's what I'm trying to unpack for us in a very clear way, I pray, this morning. The mission of God has a people, a people who gather and who go. And so may we be like Jesus in that same way. You see, if we flip that, if we put the church first, the focus of the church, I hope we at least understand that it's, it's people, not a building or not budget, but people. But if we put the church first and its needs, we may, we may, and I hope, get to Jesus. And then maybe eventually would add on a, a mission and a purpose. But it's so vital that we get the order correct. Let me throw at you a couple theological terms. I warned the ministry team that I would do this, and they said, I don't know if we're ready for this. So I'll start with a statement and then unpack it, and you'll see why they laughed at me. Our Christology determines our missiology, and our missiology determines our ecclesiology, and the importance of that order is absolutely vital. So what do I mean by those three things? Ology, the, the suffix ology is simply a, a study of, an understanding of, a knowledge of. So we put ology at the end of, of any root, often a Greek root, and you get the study of that thing. Bios is life in Greek, so biology is the study of life or living things. So Christology, we could say Christology, but it tends to be pronounced Christology, so the study of, the knowledge of, the understanding of all things of the person of Jesus Christ. Christology. Maybe that middle one was a little uncertain. Ecclesiology. Ecclesia in the Greek is a gathering. But there's lots of words for gathering and assembly in the Greek. Ecclesia was used most often when the elders of a town or a village would come together and meet for wisdom and counsel, for decision making and purpose for that city or that village. They were the ecclesia. It, it was the term most often used, except for, in a, for the church, that we would say church today, for that gathering of believers. They gathered with a purpose. Besides the metaphor terms used in the New Testament, like body and family and flock, ecclesia was the most often used term for the gathering, for that assembly of Leaders of all peoples, but leaders and peoples together for purpose. That was the ecclesia. So ecclesiology, the study of, the understanding of church, of the gathering of God's people. Missiology, now I hope you're tra tracking with this. Mission, missio in, in Latin. Missiology, the understanding, the knowledge of, the study of mission, of purpose. You understand now the order. Our Christology determines our missiology, which determines our ecclesiology. Did I say that correctly the first time? That's the correct way. If I, I said it the right way the first time, I paused. Okay. And then I explained it and I flipped it. Okay. All right. Thank you. Let's, 
Let's, thank you for staying in. It was just a test. You're on it. You got it. Our Christology determines our missiology, which determines then our ecclesiology. What we understand about who Jesus is and what he has done, his will and his work, will determine then what, our, what the mission is. Because the mission flows out of that. It's the purpose. So therefore, we must go. As Jesus was sent, so I am sending you. Some of his last words, I hope they're well known to us. In Matthew 28, he commissioned those disciples. Go into the world and, and teach all the things that I've taught to you, that all people might come to know me. Baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And certainly I will be with you to the end of the age. A little bit of a paraphrase. Acts 1.8, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. This is right before Jesus ascended in their presence. The Holy Spirit will come upon you in power and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This is the, the mission of God. The missio Dei, the mission therefore of Jesus. What we know about the mission then determines our ecclesiology. How we gather, why we gather, why we assemble, what decisions we need to make, what it looks like. Is that why you are here this morning? Because you are wholeheartedly infatuated with the person of Jesus Christ, with who he is and what he's done. Whether your knowledge is this big or you've spent decades pursuing him, and you may still say my knowledge and understanding is this big, but I'm so infatuated with who he is and what he has done. He has changed my life and is changing my life and I would give all to follow him. That's your Christological pursuit. Therefore, to be like him, to live like him, to embody and to embrace who he is, because he is Lord and Savior. He has said, come and follow me. I'm following, so therefore, to live like him, I'm on his mission. At least I want to be. What does that look like? What is my purpose? What is, what is the meaning then of my life and all that I do and all that I say? And therefore, I'm here in this place amongst others who are kindred spirits, who are like-minded for encouragement one to another, for mutual edification, to know that I'm not alone because the mission of God is too marvelous and too massive to do alone. And that's why I'm here, that I would be sent out yet again into the fields where God has already planted. So this is our call. And why is this all possible? And why is the, what is the motivation behind all of it? It is what we celebrate at Christmas. This is our Christology, and we better get it right. It's the story of God and his love and pursuit of his whole creation. When his creation rebels against him, re rejects his promises, and runs from him, that's when his pursuit begins. His love is unchanging and unwavering. And his pursuit begins as we turn from him. This is the entire story of the Bible. The, the Old Testament or the Old Covenant proclaimed this story over thousands of years, compiled by dozens, potentially, of authors living in different places at different times, all proclaiming, writing about this one great story of God's love and pursuit of his creation, a creation that has been 
running from him and have turned away from him and have doubted him. Now, a narrative within that great mega narrative, God often chooses, finds a seemingly weak, lowly, maybe marginalized, fairly insignificant, maybe nobody to become a somebody because of God's incredible, unmerited grace and favor poured out upon their life, a clear calling given to them, and through that person ends up blessing multitudes, changing generations, changing nations, turning the course of history. That's a narrative that runs again and again throughout God's story. We see it in Noah, Abraham, Moses, Gideon, Ruth, David, Esther, and on and on the list would go. Seemingly nobodies from seemingly nowhere, maybe marginalized and rejected, God chooses, blesses, and then uses to multiply his grace and favor through nations or generations. This is what God does and continues to do. Now, when we look through those storylines in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, everyone, as, as great as these men and women became and what they did, ultimately, they all failed. They all were sinners before and after God's call. They all left much to be desired. Even some who started out so strong stumbled and failed and finished poorly. Some had incredible seasons of life where they doubted and distrusted God. It should give us great hope, too, in the reality of that humanity. And yet God's favor and willingness to use and work through even broken vessels continued to be a proclamation of his story of who he is. And why? Because if God, if something would happen through that person, then it's God's glory alone not by the might or the work or the will of that super special gifted person, but one who was blessed and gifted. But everyone falls short and makes us long for a greater leader, a greater representative, one who is perfect in every way. And ultimately, that's the story that culminates in the coming, the first advent of Jesus, his arrival, when the fullness of time had come. God chose to send his own son to be that mediator. This is what Paul says in Galatians 4.4. 4. When the fullness of time has come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. And because you are sons and daughters, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, 5, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time, the perfect time, the fullness of time. In God's sovereignty, in the story he was writing, he had predetermined that moment that the full, perfect, righteous mediator the greatest prophet, priest, and king, the one who leaves us not la longing for any other. He's not lacking anything. He comes to redeem. And it shouldn't have been a surprise for God's people 
God had been revealing this promise again and again throughout the centuries through his prophets in a significant way. The prophet Jeremiah proclaimed this, Jeremiah 31, 31 and following. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, God's people. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them up by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was even their husband, declares the Lord. But this new covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after these days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. There's a proclamation of the coming new covenant. It left some mystery surrounding it, but God had declared it. And we look to the other writers and the other prophetic voices of the Old Testament to find the fulfillment of what we now celebrate that should not have been a surprise, though it may have been unique in the way Jesus came. We know the why, the what, the when, the how, the where. If we piece and trace some things together, uh, the prophet Micah in Micah 5.2 said, But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So here's even the place that God foretells. The Hebrew behind that phrase, ancient days, is equivalent to eternity past, everlasting. So not, not only is this ruler, this new mediator coming, who will be greater than any other, he is actually so much more. He's of eternity past. He's already been known throughout heaven, and he is coming. And again, choosing a Bethlehem, choosing the way that Jesus would come, continues that narrative that runs through the scriptures of the seemingly insignificant, the weak, the marginalized, to do great things through, to redeem, to restore. So the prophet Micah then hints at the who and the where. The prophet Malachi, that final voice in that Old Testament, he proclaims the events around the when. He says this. This is chapter 3, verse 1, the last chapter of the Old Testament. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of, his, of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. That temple in Jerusalem would be destroyed in A.D. 70. So if Jesus has not come, then the only hope is that that temple is rebuilt, that he might come. And we now know that Jesus has come based on the, the, the prophet's writings and the fulfillment that we see in the New Testament authors. The prophecy of Isaiah, amazing. It was written nearly 700 years prior to the birth of Jesus. And it foretells so clearly about who this Messiah would be. Here's a, here's a passage that we often connect and read around Easter time, but it's right around Christmas time to fix our eyes on what the Savior would come to do. Isaiah 53, 3 and following. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. 
Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. This is the coming Messiah, the light of the world, the Savior and healer of the world. Isaiah also said how he would come. Amazingly, through a virgin birth, Isaiah 7, 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Seven centuries before Jesus would come. There had been a long time of waiting, of hoping, of longing. Maybe so much so that people believed it would never happen. And so when it did, they missed it. God had foretold through his prophets the how, the when, the where, the who. What about the why? The great why. Isaiah hints at it in that word Emmanuel. He will be Emmanuel. Literally God with us. God dwelling with people. The gospel writer Matthew makes this absolutely clear right at the beginning of his testimony. So jumping from the Last chapter, really, in Malachi, the last chapter of the Old Testament, to the first in the new, Matthew 1, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Matthew picks up right where Isaiah ultimately left off. Only seven centuries had gone by. And proclaims that what we have now seen, what we have now witnessed in Jesus has been the fulfillment of all that we've been waiting for, all that has been proclaimed. God with us. That's been God's desire from the foundation of the world, to dwell with people, to be with his creation. He is not only the source of life, he is with us in life. And when we reject and rebel and run, when we doubt and distrust and dismiss, God's love is unwavering and his pursuit begins. He pours out his amazing grace and love, and that is why Jesus came. He came because God is love. He was and is fully God, and he came as fully man to redeem his people. And that's what incarnation means, the first advent of Jesus, the incarnation. From the Latin root carnis, Maybe there's a few more Spanish speakers than Latin speakers in the room. Carne would be very similar. So if you've had chili con carne, beans with meat, that's the incarnation. I don't want to lower your view of, of God here by that comparison, but I want you to understand the enfleshing of God. Jesus is God with meat on. God with meat on his bones. That's the incarnation. The second person of the Trinity entered this world as fully man. We see it because he came the way that every one of us came. Through the womb, through a conception that was miraculous, through a 
normal human birth, as a fully dependent baby upon two parents, to grow up in every way. But understand that a God didn't become a man and a man didn't become a God. Jesus basically added to his divinity humanity as an expression, remaining what he fully was. He became what he hadn't yet been. Again, there's an incredible mystery in this. It's one of the great paradoxes in our faith, and we worship God for the majesty and the mystery of paradox. And as I've often said, paradox is merely a placeholder for truth. The capacity of our minds can't fully grasp it, and there will be a day when all things are made to be aha, and it will not be a stretch for us. Things like this paradox, things like the trinity of God, eternity itself, will simply be reality. And in the meantime, we hold paradox as a placeholder. This is how Jesus came. John states it in his gospel this way. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that word dwelt is tabernacled. A strange way to say it. We could say Emmanueled. But tabernacled was the, tabernacle was the dwelling place of God. Jesus became the dwelling place amongst his people in the form of Jesus. Jesus, fully God, fully man, that's like 200%, and yet we hold it as one truth. We hold it not because we can grasp it or understand it, but because the New Testament continuously proclaims it. And so we hold it by faith and walk in it. Some, of, some great theologians and missiologists I'll quote because they are smarter than me. J.I. Packer, he said, Nothing in all of fiction is as fantastic as this truth of the Incarnation. Our minds can't even imagine a story greater than this. The missiologist Michael Frost said, This enfleshing of God is so radical and so total that it is the bedrock upon which rests all subsequent acts of God in history and in the world today. The theologian Wayne Grudem, modern-day theologian, but highly respected and renowned. He said it is by far the most amazing miracle of the entire Bible. It's far more amazing than the resurrection. It's even more amazing than the creation of the universe. The fact that the infinite, omnipotent, all-powerful, eternal Son of God could become a man and join himself to a human nature forever so that infinite God become one person with finite man, this will remain for eternity the most profound miracle and the most profound mystery in all of the universe. So this is what we're asked to grapple with, to wrestle with, to come to ultimately trust in by faith and receive. And it could lead to frustration and discouragement. Whenever we come up against these these ideas or these lofty thoughts that the Bible proclaims, we can be frustrated and walk away. Well, who could know it? Who could grasp it? What could it possibly mean? Or we can come to a place of great gratitude and thanksgiving and worship that we worship a God who is far beyond our 
wildest imaginations and understandings. That's a God I'll give my life for. If you can wrap your mind around fully a divinity, that's a pretty low God to worship because that puts you at, his sa- at the same level. So we come in faith to worship. But what does this mean for us? What does the incarnation mean for us? Because it is his character. It, Christ is fully godlike. But God himself is Christ-like. God created the world. He created his people in his image. In our image, let's create them. The imago Dei, another Latin term. If that's the way he represents himself in his creation, then from eternity past, he had in mind to represent himself fully in the form of Jesus. God himself is Christ-like. And this is why our Christology is so vital. That we get it right, that we understand it, that we celebrate it and know it at Christmas time, that we don't settle for the lowest common denominator of traditions and trinkets and celebrations, but the highest possible thought we can imagine of who God is and what he has done. The verse that was on the screen earlier, Philippians 2, 5 and following, this is why our Christology determines our missiology. Have this mind among yourself. It's more than just thinking. It's all attitude. It's who we are. Have this attitude among yourselves. It's yours in Christ who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, to be held onto, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. I like the image of he poured himself out. He, you can say he emptied himself as if he was a vessel that drained himself. No, he was a vessel that poured himself into another vessel. He poured himself, emptied himself. I emptied this pitcher into this glass. He poured himself into a servant vessel. He emptied himself, becoming in the likeness of men. And being found in the human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus was asked to give all upon the cross. We celebrate that at all times, especially at Easter. To lay down his life because of love, he did. Because of love, he stayed. Because of love, he gave. But before the cross was the womb. And these theologians and these scholars are rightfully pointing us to that as the greatest act of love and pursuit. Not the cross, not the resurrection. Vital for our life, vital for our salvation. But the greatest act of love, the most mysterious, the most majestic, was God himself pouring himself into the womb of a teenage virgin. Not many of us will be asked to lay down our life for others, even enemies, as Jesus himself did. Certainly I could say many of us, none of us will be asked to endure crucifixion by God's mercy. But all of us have been asked to become incarnational. To pour out ourselves into the vessels of servants. To a people. Into a place. To lay down our will and our wants 
to love and pursue others because that's who Jesus is. And if he fills us and dwells within us, he means us to do the same. We now become the incarnation of God, the enfleshing of God through the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. All parts of the Trinity are fully incarnational. God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Meant to bring the spiritual and the physical together that he continues to dwell with his people. An incredible thought. And it's why our Christology determines our missiology, which determines then our ecclesiology. Paul says, be like Jesus in this. Love in a way that costs you. It will cost us time, energy, emotion, comfort, security, position, Jesus left all. He left the right hand of God, his Father, to move into the neighborhood, so to speak. If we really want to know the love of God, we must become incarnational in our love. It's who he is. The incarnation, this first advent of Christ, is not merely a confession of our faith, something that we say or something that we think is nice. It must be, as Alan Hirsch, another missiologist, says, it must be the theological prism through which we view our entire lives and therefore our missional task in the world. That Jesus has come incarnationally. To know the love of God, we must live it. We must put flesh on the bones of our doctrines. Muscle and tissue and sweat and tears and blood on what we say we believe. We have hope and confidence because Jesus has gone before us and now he goes with us through his spirit to continue the work of incarnation. As the Father has sent me, Jesus said, so I am sending you. And that encompasses all. The Father sent Jesus incarnationally to sacrifice to give all, to lay down his life. And so I am sending you. That's our missiology. So why are we here? We should be out there as if there's a distinction. And I don't want to reinforce the distinction between the secular and the sacred as if there's a blur. Jesus proved that there was no separation. He came to dwell with all peoples to live amongst them, even to be as them. And so he sends us. Dwight, you preached a couple weeks ago on Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ, or at least that was one of your core texts. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and through me. And now the life I live in this flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Do I need to re-preach it? It must have been the work of the Spirit because I felt both rebuked and encouraged at the same time. It's like getting slapped in the face and saying, thank you, that was, whew, that was good. So it must be a work of the Spirit that we would be convicted and encouraged at the same time because we fall so short of the work of Jesus. We know that. But Lord, help us. Are we the incarnation of Jesus in our world? More on that in the weeks to come as we especially see what his 
middle advent, the advent in Judea, the filling of the Spirit meant for his life and his ministry. But as we ponder, especially in this, this season when there's such hurt and such brokenness and grieving and lostness and isolation, all the things that kind of match along with the actual darkness that we experience in this winter time, and it's heightened for so many because these times of what are for many celebration and joy and or certainly our world would try to at least put a false facade on that. For many, it's a reminder of what was that is no more. And it's hard. Who are the hurting, the broken, the lost, the struggling, the silenced, the outcast, the marginalized, the refugee, the homeless? Who are they in our midst? right in the fields that we are already planted in, where you live, your neighborhood, where you work, your office place, where you learn, your school, or where you play, your hobbies, your recreation in the community, right in your midst. Our prayer doesn't need to be, Lord, send me. He already has. Now, certainly, I'm open to that prayer of, Lord, open my eyes to new places. Help me be bold in my faith to go just as you came. But our right prayer is, Lord, use me. Lord, help me. Help me to be incarnational as you were. You said it was better that you would go to heaven and send the Holy Spirit. Why? Because now you've got literally millions of people planted in these places of hurt and brokenness and darkness and marginalization. They're already there, Lord, incarnate within me that I might live amongst, not try to distance myself from, that I might move into the neighborhood just as you did, which may be a literal move. Some of you are on the move or may simply be a move of the heart. I'm already here. Use me, Lord. Make me incarnational. It's so amazing. When Jesus came, he came to, out of, to and out of Nazareth. It's almost like a curse word for many in the region. Nazareth? What good comes from Nazareth, Nathaniel said? Jesus chose to come from there. Maybe a town of a thousand people. Some of you live in neighborhoods of a thousand people. Na- Nazareth? What good comes out of Nazareth? Because Jesus moves into the most unlikely places. He's using us to fill into the cracks and the crevices of all spaces. To bring redemption and healing and hope to all peoples. That they all might find new life in him and grow up to bear fruit for him. He's already sent us. God's mega narrative is love and pursuit. His meta narrative is that he has chosen the lowly, the weak, the seemingly nobodies, to work through mightily to bless a multitude. And it's you. And it's me. We don't compare ourselves to the one next to us and the different kinds of giftings that we have. We celebrate. We say, Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, you are in me. Use me. There's no end to the how. We say, God, how? If you want a hint, look at what Jesus did. More to come. 
but he ate with people. He walked with people a lot. And he prayed. He was on a mountainside or in a boat seeking God and crying out for his work to be done through him for his kingdom to come. If we're going to be followers of Jesus, followers of the way, the rhythms of our life are going to be very basic and very relatively simple if we'll carve out spaces for them. Times of solitude and seeking the very presence of God and crying out for him to work in, through, and amongst us. The rhythm of Jesus. We will be people who eat and drink with all kinds of peoples. At our tables, at their tables. We take invitations and we invite the most unlikely to break bread with and therefore break down walls with. We'll be people who listen who don't claim our own agenda or as if we have our own wisdom or insight. We listen to the hurt and the pain and the brokenness. We invite those stories. We welcome them. Where we have opportunity to proclaim hope, healing, peace, and joy, we proclaim it. We bring that healing to bear in those spaces. Man, if we all walked more with eyes open, we have any kind of number of devices. People don't even walk anymore. They walk a block and find a, a lime green shaped utility to move them even faster to the next place. 21st century litter, in my opinion. If we would just walk and see and talk and hear the rhythms of Jesus. I'm committed in 2020. Here's one of the visionary things. That we would win the day, encouraged by a few other pastors and leaders who are calling this kind of action amongst God's people. You want to win the year? You better start with the day. Win the day. Wake up early. Put your phone in the other room. Open your Bible. Ask God to speak. And ask Him to use you that day. More on that in weeks to come. Jesus, you are the one who is incarnated into a place, a despised place. Not just an unknown place, a despised place. Nazareth, you went there. You incarnated into the womb of a teenage virgin to become like the most marginalized, the outcast, the shunned of society, we're not told much of your early days, but you grew up in a form, in a way that always had to defend who you were. Thank you, Jesus. If you did that, you come to us. If you did that, you come to use us, to work through us. There's no one too weak, too marginalized, too shunned, too shamed, too despised that you would not fill, heal, redeem, restore, and bless. To bless a multitude. Maybe it just begins with a family, a friend, a neighbor, a coworker. You have come. You are coming again. You have been sent. Now send us. 
We draw near to you today because you have drawn near to us and your promise is you will be with us and never leave us. Thank you, Jesus. We celebrate you, the light of the world, this Christmas time. May it be far more than a confession of our, of our faith, a declaration of our lips. May it be the transformation of our hearts. Write your word and your will upon our heart, as the prophet Jeremiah proclaimed, that you will be our God and we will be your people. Don't just send us, Lord. Use us for your glory and for our joy. Amen. Invite the team to come and lead us in response in a combination of reflection and melancholy leading to joy, I pray. Draw near to the table. We get to eat together. There's tables in the back there with a reminder that Jesus has come and given all. And so we come humbly and say, I'm yours. If that's the attitude of your heart today, then come and receive. There's no pretense of knowledge or behaviorism, but of confession, repentance, and humility. That's what God judges. He sees that heart. You come and desire him to be transformed by him, to be healed by him, to be changed by him, to be used by him, and this meal is for you. We come and we give generously. These boxes are here for that purpose. We don't always call that out, but it's coming to the end of the year we can do so much more together. So many of you give abundantly, generously. You support the works of the ministry here to steward what we have been given and left as a legacy, and we want to pass on to the next generation even better than we found it. Thank you. Know that so much, at least a tithe, up to 20% of all that is given goes out of these walls to the ministry of Acts 1-8, that you would be our witnesses. You would be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. We're committed to that, and we will continue to give generously. So please give. This is a great place to give. There are many other great opportunities also. We are one of them. But if this is your body and this is your family, give generously to God's work. I invite you to that work of the kingdom. So you can put old-fashioned gifts of checks in these boxes. Otherwise, you can get online or through your mobile device or text and do all of the things to transfer money that we should be able to do in the 21st century. If you want to drop some coins and hear them clink, God bless. Let's respond. Thank you guys for leading us. Let's be his church. Let's worship. Let's give him praise and honor.